0: Dan, I know we had to schedule this thing around my parent-teacher conferences tonight. Uh, it turns out we did not actually need to do that as parent-teacher conferences were canceled. That was a few days ago. I have a feeling
1: I know why your parent-teacher conferences were canceled. But do you want to tell me why?
0: Yeah, uh, they did, obviously they're trying to limit the amount of interaction with large groups of people. And parent-teacher conference brings a lot of people to the school and with the COVID-19 virus. Is it COVID-19 virus or just COVID-19? I think it's coronavirus disease 19. I think, you you know, there's a lot we all have
1: to learn about, you know, what's happening now. You know, coronavirus is the term you often hear, but that's a that's a whole category, right, of viruses that I think MERS and SARS and those other diseases fall within. And then COVID-19 Is actually, I think, like a strain of what you get. And then there's a real name for it. That's a third name that the scientists tend to use.
0: SARS-CoV-2. I feel like
1: COVID-19 is the middle ground. So I use that. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. So.
0: um, But it means coronavirus disease 2019. And so that's why you wouldn't like saying the COVID-19 viruses like it's redundant.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense i think but i think this goes to the very point that we've all had a lot to learn you know in the last you know couple weeks and increasingly in the last few days about what's happening around the globe this this global officially the world health organization has labeled it a global pandemic
0: yeah that was interesting we got that message what i think yesterday and then we're trying to i might i teach at a high school and we're trying to figure out okay so school's probably going to be canceled. Um, what are we going to do? That was the big, the big discussion around the old water cooler.
1: Well, and you know, I'm, I'm actually on spring break during this time. So I've just been interacting with a a lot of people, calling friends and family. And I think one thing that has really been challenging for me is just like a lot of stuff these days is working through accurate information, um, and what to do. And, um, you know, I was talking uh, yesterday from when we were recording this uh, to some of my friends. I'm a I'm a big NBA fan. I think I, I mentioned that before. And mm-hmm. I'm a, I actually share season tickets to Oklahoma City Thunder with some of my friends. And I was messaging my friends about – I was like, hey, I don't think you should go tonight. I think it's really time for us to, like, not go to large gatherings in this big NBA game with 18, over 18,000 fans is planned. And I could not convince my friends that this was a serious issue. Like, mm-hmm. they were still very much – like this is going to bowl over? What are we supposed to do? Not go in public all the time? He's like, yeah, it's called social distancing, and the you know epidemiologists are recommending not coming into contact with people as much as you can and ca- canceling large events. It made me think about uh, you know when we had Ken Davis on oh Ken Davis recently yeah Kennessy Davis and we'll put him his episode in the in the show notes. But he came on and talked about his his recent book more deadly more deadly than More. The hidden history of the Spanish flu. I have an autographed copy. I do too. He's such a good friend of us and SS chat and and social studies teachers. And I always remember the case um, in there's in Philadelphia where they decided not to cancel a
0: the parade. The parade.
1: And they downplayed it, which is similar oh. to what China did initially with this whole thing, right? They downplayed it. And there's, I've seen a lot of downplaying this, talking about it as being similar to the flu, oh, right. um, which this downplaying it is one of the things that causes people then not to be prepared, right, um, and not cancel these large gatherings. And so Philadelphia ended up having a very high rate of deaths. And St. Louis canceled their public events and ended up having a lot lower rate. And it kind of shows you how um, we can we can really save lives by taking these types of precautions, especially early. But it's hard to convince people how real the problem is. Yeah. I've been reminded, 50 million people died from the Spanish flu in 1918. And a lot of people don't realize it's more than died in the war.
0: Right. Right, because it's something we do, and we talk about this in the episode, that does kind of get glossed over. Um, we barely mentioned the Spanish flu in our curriculum because um, we focus so much on the war. But thats I wonder if that will change in the near future. <laughs>
1: Well, you'd hope know, social studies teachers right now are adapting, right, and yeah. and talk. This is a teachable opportunity that helps help students be more prepared right now to understand this issue. Uh, but there, you know, then we've got a lot of on the ground stuff where we have to figure out what to do in schools, right? And a lot of schools are canceling.
0: Oh, my school is officially canceled uh, for the next starting tomorrow for the next two weeks. Um, we are not going to be in school.
1: For those who are, I think it's an interesting situation that's happening here. Um, you know, a lot of schools that can cancel are doing so, right? Like yours, um, like a lot of others I know about. But I, I know that some of the urban school districts have been the most hesitant. Mm-hmm. Um, to, it's so many students rely on their schools for a lot of things. And often working right. parents um, who are more likely to have students in urban school districts, big school districts, um, sometimes have less work flexibility. And so there's real concerns. And so there's kind of two discussions here. One is, what do you do if you're in school? Of course, practice good hygiene. You know, Um, I I listened to a really good podcast. I'll put in the show notes from the Harvard EdCast where they had on both an uh, education expert and an epidemiologist. And they talked about schools that don't even have soap. Oh, wow. And I, I was just like, it's not a good starting point. But then the next conversation they had was about teachers being worried about how long it was going to take to like for everyone to wash their hands. Oh
0: right! If you have thirty kids, you have to do it twenty seconds. I've heard this. If every kid has to wash their hands for twenty seconds, you're talking about ten minutes for everyone to wash their hands.
1: Although that's assuming only there is only one place to wash their hands, right? Like if if I don't know, a lot of bathrooms have more than one. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. If it depends if it's in your classroom or somewhere, but. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenges around that. And to me, the answer is obvious. We need to prioritize health, right? We right. need to not worry about our, our standardized tests. We need to think about this as a little more important and you know, talk to legislators and others to make sure that they're understanding and, and flexible with these types of things. But in your case, you're going online. Do you know what to do? Are you going online or no. are you just canceling?
0: No. So the state of Massachusetts, we actually had a um – we were piloting a distance learning program for Snow Days, and the education commissioner this year stopped it, um, because as not everyone has equal access to uh, devices or the internet, it was putting you know some students ahead of others, and so as a result, he stopped it altogether. Uh, so we were discussing earlier this week, like maybe they'll waive it, maybe they'll waive it, and maybe we'll be able to do distance learning, but they ended up just saying you don't have to make up any days after your 185 scheduled days. And so that's where we are right now. Um, So at least for the next two weeks, like that's it. It's just a pause on our, I have research papers due next week and I just want to grade research papers. I just want to get them done and get them back. And that's just going to be postponed and everything's going to be changed. But you know, I do appreciate
1: a district just saying it's okay to just take a break, right? Like we, yeah. we so often get systems and feel like it's the end of the world. But I, I you know, we're, it, when you're in it every day, I'm sure that's how you feel. Like yeah. you have your schedule and your things you want to do. But, um, I do think it's, it's nice that to just say it's just canceled and <laughs> the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, to be oh, sure. The, their lives are going to go on. Yeah. But I know you weren't saying that. That's a bad idea, but you too bad they didn't turn in the research papers. I know you could if I told
0: to... my students today, I was like, if I could go back in time, I would make your research papers due today, which is the stupidest thing. Like, that's really what I would do. I would do better things than that. I think, I hope, yeah. I think you would.
1: Well, so a lot of schools are asking their teachers to go online, and a lot of universities are asking, right, to go universities in particular, is asking us. We we are on spring break, but we're getting essentially an extra week of spring break with the uh, assumption we are going online after that. And I think it's likely that's for the rest of the semester. Um, And so I think a lot of teachers don't know what to do in regards that. And so we were fortunate on somewhat short notice that we were able to bring somebody onto the podcast who can help us think about learning online and what this transition might look like for teachers and what they can do and can't do. And so we would love to welcome to the podcast, Michael Barber. Welcome. Thank you. Hey,
0: Michael Barber. Thank you for joining yeah, it's us. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are? Now, I know it's pronounced Barber like the person who cut your hair, but who is Michael Barber?
2: Um, I'm a associate professor of instructional design at Torrell University California in Vallejo, uh, but I'm originally from Newfoundland, Canada. Basically, born and, and raised in a relatively rural area. And um, uh, for the last, I guess, two decades or so, I've been quite active in the K 12 online learning space, largely in part because at one point in time I had the pleasure of being a high school social studies teacher in a small rural district in uh, Newfoundland. And uh, the district I was in had a number of online AP social studies or online AP math and science courses. But there was no online social studies at all. And being a social studies teacher and someone who's a little tech savvy, I thought, well, hey, you know, I can do something about this. Um, So I I started putting these AP European history and U.S. uh, government and politics courses online. And um, I've been working in the field really ever
0: since. Oh, wow. That's great. You saw the need and then you filled it.
2: Or I was just, you know, a social studies nerd and, and didn't want all the science <laughs> and math folks
0: to have all of the fun. That's your radioactive spider bite moment.
1: We have to make sure the math and science folks, you know, don't feel like they're lapping us at any point. They get a lot of they get a lot of good attention with the with all the STEM stuff. Well, um, it's, so too. it's And it's funded. Right. Exactly. Um, well, what, what was the impetus for your district? to to take those courses online? Was it just to give students the option or was it because you were in a rural area?
2: Yeah, we were, it was a a rural area. The closest school to me was about 60 miles away. We had, I think, 10 high schools in the district of which uh, I think six of them were all grade schools. Most of them had like 200 kids or less. So you were having, you know, maybe 15 to 25 kids in each grade level. And if you had one or two that wanted to do advanced placement, that was really all, you know, all they had. So you don't devote a teacher to one or two students when you've got that few resources in that small a school. So this was really the only way to offer it.
1: Yeah, that that makes sense. And I I understand, um, you know, a lot of cases, there's the reason online schools have popped up is because of specific needs of students. Now, in some cases, I've, I think online schools have popped up with the dream of what they will do and maybe do or don't succeed in that dream. And, and so it's always important to go back and evaluate how those things work. So fortunately, not only were a social studies teacher of this topic, you've been researching it for a, quite a few years. And in fact, when I'm, I'm teaching a class right now, one of my students in the doctoral class is really interested in online teaching. And they said you know, they wanted to learn more. And so I just started searching. And your name popped up many times when I did those searches. So can you tell us a little bit about the research you've done and how, how it can help us think about what quality online education looks like?
2: Sure. Um, well, I, I guess it started back when I was working in that program. I was working on my master's at the time and I had to do a thesis. And like most master's programs, just about every course had a research paper attached to it. So to be a little bit more Useful, I tried to always pick topics that were directly relevant to the teaching I was doing in, in this online program. Um, and that eventually led to a, a doctoral program and a dissertation and then a career as an academic, where, um, you know, you know, us academics in the ivory tower, we've got a publisher perish in that kind of situation. So it's, uh, uh, it, I've been fortunate in that, uh, you know, I, I've had those opportunities and that also. There weren't a lot of people looking at this area when I first started, so it gave me the opportunity to explore a wide variety of of topics. And you know, as I look at you know, thinking to your your some of the stuff you were talking about during the introduction about you know, well, given everything that's happening, and, and a lot of these schools are being forced into this environment, except in Massachusetts. What do folks do? And and um it's it's become a real a real tension within the field to be honest with you because some see it as an opportunity because there's a lot of folks that don't have a lot of background in online learning that now are forced to do it both students and teachers Um, And then there's other folks that look at it and say, you know, we've got a lot of folks that have no background in this area, no training in this area, and now we're forcing them to do it. And what kind of experience are they going to have doing it and how is that going to impact their opinion of online learning
0: going forward? Will it set Um, back the movement?
2: Exactly. And one of the things you'll notice, particularly in higher ed, I haven't seen this as much in the K-12 environment, but you'll notice in higher ed, they – so many of these programs have specifically decided to use the term remote teaching as opposed to online teaching. Because, you know, uh, if you were planning an online program for your school, if you were planning, starting the planning right now, you in all honesty would be planning for the 21 22 school year you know, in terms of trying to figure out what courses you're going to offer, who you're going to get to design those courses, what sort of software you're going to use to support those courses, how you're going to prepare students for it, how you're going to train the teachers for it. I mean, really what we're doing here is is we're not creating online instruction. We're not, even for that matter, delivering really good online learning. We're just moving teaching into a distance environment using the technology that we have. Toro is, is primarily a medical school and you know, because of that, I, I've taken to using the language. You know, we're not really planning out a course; we're triaging what to do to get through the next X number of weeks. That you know, we've got to to survive this, and I, and I think that's one of the ways in which, regardless if you're in higher ed or in the K twelve environment, that you want to look at this is how do I triage what has to be done so that I can you know survive however long I've got to go.
1: I think one suggestion I, I saw recently is not overthinking what's possible in such a short amount of time and keeping it simple, right? The, the idea that you don't have to go high tech, you don't have to create fancy videos with all kinds of stuff. You can go low tech as much as possible. Um, I was talking to a colleague, I was like, you know, you can just assign good readings and have them write reflections. And that may not be everything you want. But that simplicity may be what's appropriate for the moment. So, what, what, what do we do in remote teaching, and what do we want to do in, in great online teaching that we need to understand the difference between those two?
2: I guess to start with the first part of your question, what do we do with remote teaching? Your example actually is exactly it. You know, think about what is the easiest way in which I can get this content across to my students and you know if that means emailing them a pdf that they read and then they write a reflection email it back to you if if that's going to accomplish the goals for you know the objectives that you've listed for that particular content then that's great you know there's a lot of content that's freely available out there now and while you could spend 5 or 6 hours creating a lovely instructional video in fact if you look at the research they say that 8 to 12 minutes is sort of the sweet spot in terms of the length of an instructional video, but as someone who does this on a regular basis, I can tell you that a 10-minute video is going to take me about two to three hours to, to actually put together. And you guys editing podcasts, I'm sure, have a similar experience in terms of you know the amount of time that you end up with compared to the amount of time it actually took to get you there. Uh, whereas I can spend 15 minutes and probably find a video that someone else has created online. And while it might not be exactly what I'm looking for, it's good enough for now. And, you know, covers off 80% of the content that I want to cover off. And I can write a little paragraph that goes along with that when I send out the link for it. Um, you know, even with looking at like a lot of schools don't have a learning management system, and you know they're scrambling now to try to get a short term contract with Canvas or Blackboard or one of these other companies to to get them when. A lot of this could just be done with, you know, uh, simply just by going back and forth and emailing folks, putting up a basic web page or setting up a a free site on Blogger or EduBlogs or something like that and just using that to post that quick content. But that idea of, you know, what is the easiest way I can do this now, I think is really how we want to approach the remote teaching.
1: I think one one idea I've had, Michael, we've talked about a lot on here and we can reference back to is um, inquiry is really big in the social studies right now. And so the inquiry design model, um, really what it does is it encourages you to come up with a question, then have sources, right? So you give students your sources, things to read, videos to watch, things that a lot of stuff's already created, right? Crash course videos may be very helpful for people that have a lot of con- content to cover right now because they cover a lot. That's probably more geared towards high school. And then you have your activity that they do, whatever their for, their task is, right? And so you have your question, your sources, and your task. And I think that to me, that's a pretty simple model. And if you have a learn, learning management system where you can have interactions, I mean, I think that's great. Um, if you're able to do live video conferencing and that works, I think that's great. But the reality is some students may not be able to do that. And we have to plan about it. And there's also probably an issue around like, You don't want to do something that like two thirds of your class is going to be able to do and then the other third gets left out. Right. I mean, that seems like that wouldn't be a good idea. So if you were planning for the next school year, I mean, what are the things you would want to do if you had more time?
2: Well, if you have more time, you can sort of be a little bit more specific about what it is that you have to do compared to what it is you'd like to do. And be able to plan out things for students in both categories, you know, so that you have the, the basic things. And, and we do this in our classroom all the time anyway. You know, there's a basic level of understanding that we want all of the students in the room to have. But if I walked into my classroom and that's all I did, you know, a third of the class is going to sit there being bored all the time. Um, And for that matter, a third of them are going to have it done about halfway through. And then there's a third that, you know, they'll get it, but it'll take them the full time to get it. For right now, that's okay. But when we plan our face to face classes and if you have time to plan it, good online learning, you'd actually plan in those additional things so that those students that have the ability or that just have a, a natural interest in the subject area. Are able to go beyond what it is that you need them to do, um, and being able to, you know, plan. Um, when we first started designing online learning back 20 years ago, when I was doing this, we would also almost have like three lessons that we would have in, in each of the sections of the course. You know, there was a lesson that basically just covered the objectives and nothing else. There was a lesson for our average ability students or the students that, you know, your B and C student type person, you know, that it had a little bit of enrichment in there. There was a little bit of tying it to larger concepts, but, you know, it didn't go that much beyond essentially what it was that we were required for um, the, the end of course test. And then, you know, we'd have a third section. We'd actually color code these, to be honest with you. This was how bad it was at the time. Oh, wow. You know, so essentially every student had to do what was in black. And then there was another group of students that had to do the blue section as well. And then a small group of students that had to do the green section on top of that. And, you know, they were graded along the way on all of these things. And, you know, we would the and, you know, that's not necessarily a good model, but it gives you that idea of, you know, planning it for different ability students within your classroom. And and we're able to do this on the fly in a face-to-face class because we can recognize oftentimes when certain students aren't getting it or we can often predict, um, you know, which group of students aren't going to, you know, be able to master the content as quickly. In the online environment, because you don't have a lot of those visual cues, you know, you've got to, Do things like um, understand the analytics that the learning management system provides if you have a learning management system so that you can, you know, tell when students are struggling or when students are just breezing through things. Um, You know, you've got a plan for those aspects of it, uh, deciding upon specific tools. You know, all learning management systems come with a discussion form, which is good enough, but... You know, you've got things like voice threads that add an element of video in there so that you have this spider looking thing that comes out. Uh, you've got something very basic, with you know, a web based function like Flipgrid, which is a free tool that you could use. You know, and all of these things are, in all honesty, things that for folks that have a little bit more um, technological acumen could incorporate as part of the remote teaching as well, but not something that you'd have to do.
1: That's really good advice. And I think um, that's another part of keeping it simple, potentially, is if you're going to do use some tech tools, maybe choose one to use. Right. And maybe think about it's how easy is it for students to use and then talk to your other teachers like we don't all need to add three tech tools for students to learn if we're trying to do something online. Um, And so saying, hey, do we all want to use Flipgrid in our classes as a way to kind of connect? Is that something students would have access to? Um, that's the first thing I thought of with all of this was just e- contacting my students and asking them, what do you have the capability to do? What technology do you have? What internet access do you have at home? And getting a better sense of that. And that's going to be um, a challenge communities are going to have to take up to think about. Do they have access? Can we provide access? Things like that.
2: And, and that's an important aspect, looking at the student side of things, because everything that I've been seeing as I've been reading through this, particularly at the higher ed level, has been looking at how do we get faculty ready for this? And at higher ed, maybe that's OK, because there's a bit of an assumption that, you know, the adult learner is a little more self-motivated, self-regulated, that, you know, they have a little bit more self-efficacy. You know, those are terms that don't describe a lot of our high school kids or our middle school kids or, you know, our elementary school kids in particular. While it's it's going to be a, a steep learning curve for a lot of you know, teachers to try to figure out how to teach remotely it's going to be just as difficult for students to figure out how to learn successfully in a remote, independent, isolated environment. The idea of, you know, not using too many tools and trying to keep things as basic as possible right now isn't just for the ease on the teacher's end. It's going to make it a lot easier for students to get through this as well. You know, one of the reasons that we Um, You mentioned in your introduction that, you know, some of the research has shown that, you know, students tend not to do as well in these environments. And Mike, you mentioned in Massachusetts that, you know, access to the technology and, and being able to get at these systems is a big issue. One of the reasons students don't do well in these environments is because they've spent the last X number of years learning how to learn in a classroom. And some of them have gotten very good at that, and some of them have gotten mediocre at that, but that's how they've learned to learn. And now, all of a sudden, we're asking them to learn in a completely different environment and really providing them with no lead-up to that, no, you know, here's how to get ready to learn in this kind of environment.
0: And we used uh, Google Classroom as a a management tool. We could have done it. We have the capabilities. But unfortunately, you know,
1: well... I, th- I think about too, how some kids don't want to be in the classroom. <laughs> they don't want to go to class, but they have to school's compulsory. They know they have to show up there. At least most of the days they have show up there sitting at home, maybe with no parents there. They possibly are working things like that. That's a totally different responsibility. I mean, let's be honest, 13 year old Dan might've struggled with like actually sitting down and doing the online work. And, um, I do wonder if if schools are requiring this if, if a big thing to think about is not overwhelming students be reasonable about it right do not over assign because it's some students just I don't know you know the, the I could see the gap between students grow within a class in this environment do we know what kind of students um, tend to succeed more i mean is it students who who have the resources and technology to to be online and have tons of devices? Is that like a big, big difference? Or do, do we know demographically um, of, around students? No,
2: actually, it, it's interesting, because um, that's a question that often gets asked um, in the field, for that matter, about most technology based learning environments. And it's, it's the wrong question to ask, to be honest with you. In the field of educational technology, there's sort of an infamous article that um, it wasn't the first time this is said, and it's been said many times since, but it's sort of the best sort of coin of phrase that had, has been said with uh, Richard Clark, uh, who is a professor somewhere here in California, uh, wrote an article in the Review of Educational Research, which I'll add into the show notes because uh, it's available in open access, uh, looking at the impact that media or technology has on learning. And he has a line in there that says, Media or technology impacts learning the same way a delivery truck impacts the nutritional value of the groceries that it carries. Um, essentially, the idea is that technology is just a medium in which instruction is delivered. And it's the instructional design and the pedagogy that impacts how much or how little a student will learn. Um, so, you know, the answer to your question, which type of students learn best in an online environment? Well, it depends on the online environment. I've seen um, you know, some great uh, in programs set up where they created the entire program around addressing a particular population of students, and in some cases, very challenging populations of students that weren't being served in the face-to-face environment, and they've had great success in those type of situations. But they started with the question of, okay, how do we design this program so that it's going to suit the needs of this particular learner. And, you know, so if you put another type of learner in that environment, they wouldn't do so well. One of the difficulties is that for much of the online learning that we've got it there right now, they tend to be either designed for your really high ability student, like those AP social studies courses I was doing, or you see a lot of online credit recovery on the opposite end of that. Students who really just, you know, aren't, Credit recovery type students don't do well in that environment. Anyone who's not an AP type student doesn't do well in, in, in that environment. And so we you need an LMS job.
0: for the rest of us.
2: Well, we need to start yeah. designing <laughs> programs for specific students in much the same way you walk into your classroom and you don't teach one way all the time. You, know, you teach different ways and you engage in you know, different pedagogical strategies to try to get different students interested in what it is you're doing. And we just haven't done a good job of doing that in the online environment.
1: See, I thought your metaphor was going to be that Elon Musk had invented delivery trucks that make our food more nutritional. But I guess, not. you know, that's actually how a lot of uh, technology works in education. We make these big promises that it's going to transform things. Um, uh, I'll post this in the show notes. There's a real good um article that was just released by Royce Kimmins, who is at, at Brigham Young University, um, on his PICRAP model. And there's been a lot of models for technology integration, the SAMR model, SAMR, and, and TPAC, and, and several of them, they have different gr- benefits. But I really appreciate is because it doesn't presume that technology improves educational outcomes, right? It's, it's, it doesn't presume that. And I think that's really important because I've seen teachers use technology and make their lessons worse many times <laughs> i was like if you just got rid of the screens and everything you probably could have had a more meaningful conversation than trying to do this high-tech thing that took 12 minutes to explain um and you ended up losing time you needed so i i totally agree i think it's it's less about the technology and more about the pedagogy um and the, so having thoughtful questions questions kids care about right um, assignments kids are actually interested in is probably more important maybe than than what you're doing, and so low-tech potentially could work.
2: Yeah, you know, things like you said, good questions, clear instructions, providing good resources, you know, and these are all things that teachers are good at anyway, right? So, you know, in often cases trying to incorporate the latest and greatest technology regardless if it's because you've got to teach remotely or because, you know, you're looking to make a splash in your classroom gets in the way of those things that teachers do well anyway.
1: Dr. Barber, thank you so much for joining us. I I hope that this puts people at ease that, you know, teaching online doesn't, you know, have to be, you know, especially when you're doing this temporarily to help students, you know, get through the school year and figure out ways to move forward. That doesn't have to be, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's simple ways to get through this. I think your advice hopefully can really help calm teachers and be prepared, which is really the same thing we need. We need people to be prepared to address COVID-19, too. For our listeners, we, we really hope, we know this is going to be a challenging time for everyone. Um, we hope everyone can take care of each other and and listen to the experts. Please listen to the experts. I've seen a lot of leaders who are not listening to the experts mm-hmm. um, at, a, at a lot of levels. But the experts have been telling us exactly what this is going to look like. And I'll link some of those show notes. I've, I've been following Zainab Tufetchi's advice from an article she put out February 27th. And everything she said was going to happen is happening. And you know, I think this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better, but it's not about panicking, it's about being prepared. And we we need to cancel events, we need to stay home, hunker down, create some some meaningful lessons for students and and uh, support each other. Get supplies but don't hoard them. That's my last that's my last thing I'm yelling.
0: And if you have a neighbor who has a toddler and an infant who he's kind of trying to take care of, wish him well. Wave across <laughs> the fence scotch
1: please everyone deliver scotch to michael milton's address we'll put that in the show notes so excellent so again uh dr Barber, thank you again so much for joining us how can people uh, connect
0: with you online
2: um well my website is just michaelbarber.com so that's probably the easiest place to find me
0: excellent well again thank you so much uh and we do hope to keep the discussion going
2: it was a pleasure chatting with you guys
0: and with you At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative education, or you just need to vent, we're there for you, like the Friends program, except we're not going to go behind a paywall. We'll always be there for you. Hit us up at Visions of Ed. And of course, we're on the Facebook and in that one other place. And if you haven't already, please tell your parents, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. Particularly if you put us in your headphones and you just keep your distance.
1: We're probably all going to be stuck at home for a while, so you're going to probably have a little bit of time to write us a five-star <laughs> review. Oh my and goodness! And if you do so, we will read it on the air. Um, but take care of all your needs first. Write the five-star review second. Yeah, um, that's
0: that's secondary. That's secondary. Like after after self-care, watch some episode of Parks and Rec, and then write a five-star review.
1: Then the five-star review. We would like to thank Sarah Galvin of Michigan State University and the site EdTech Conference, the social media SIG, for her outstanding editing skills. Thank you. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42. Thank Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast.